We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How'd you do it, Roth? I'm good, man. How are you? I am good. I had myself an ordeal. You ready for a travel bad beat, Roth? Oh, yeah. Lay it on me. Everybody Vegas loves- doesn't know what to do with this bad beat. Yeah. Everybody loves a shitty airport story. So here's mine. So... I left my driver's license in Chicago. Now, is that I don't I don't follow uh, U.S. document policy very well. Is that bad? It was bad. I went over to the TSA agent. Because first of all, I had to get first of all, I had to get to Sun Valley, and then had to take the longest and most expensive cab ride of my life. But before that happened, I had to go to the TSA agent. I was like, "Listen, I don't know how I'm going to get home." And the dude was like, "Do you have any other photo ID in your wallet?" And I'm going through my wallet, and the only other photo ID I have is my Maryland medical marijuana card <laughs> with my with my photo on it, and I look fucking baked as shit in the photograph, even nice. though I'm not. And I'm like, I'm like, will this work? And he's like. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That actually will we that's called a secondary ID. So we'll put you through and then we'll ask you some questions afterward to make sure we know who you are. And I'm like, is there nothing weed can't do? Powerful. But I had my wife, uh, I told my wife about this, and she's like, why don't I overnight you your passport so you can get home and not rely on a fucking weed card? So she did that and I got back home and now I have to get a new driver's license. And that is my incredible story, Vince Mancini, who was our guest this week. Hi, Vince. Hi. How did you, how was the drive from Boise to Sun Valley? You, yeah. you, you skipped over that part. So I, I got in the cab and my uh-huh. and my cabbie was my cabbie was a Russian dude who said he was like he was in the army and like piloted fighter jets and shit like that. He might have been lying. For all I know, he was lying. But the point being Uh, The drive from Boise to Sun Valley is fucking harrowing, and I had no business making that drive on my own, especially after flying for, like, fucking eight to ten hours or whatever. How long is it? It was three hours, but you have to go over a mountain Mm -hmm. and, like, back down it, and it's, like, whiteout conditions, and there's, like, there's snow, like, giant snow drifts, like, like being blown across the road, and motherfuckers in Escalades, like, passing you because you're going too slow. We were in, like, a Celica. Like, it was not, like... (laughs) So I was like, and I was so tired. I was like, if we die, that's all right. At least I don't have to put up with traveling anymore. But we made it there, and then I I paid him his $8 billion, and then we got out. But Vince, we've had enough of my travel bullshit, because that is such standard disagree. I was riveted. Yeah, it's such Tony Kornheiser shit. So anyway, you are here (laughs) to talk to us about... The Oscars, which are in a few weeks. Ba, 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 da, the ba. Super Bowl ba, 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 of Glamour. That's Hollywood's yeah, biggest night. And all the stars are out. <laughs> so we talked with Israel Daramola about it a little last week, but now's a good time for us to get a few knuckles deep into the topic since you are ostensibly a professional film critic at Film Drunk. <laughs> ostensibly. He is literally a professional film I mean, critic, friend. Emphasis it's true. On the he's he's been he's been blurbed on Rotten Tomatoes, so you know he is <laughs> fucking right. legit. Vince, are you as excited for Jimmy Kimmel to host the ceremony as we are? Oh, I'm thrilled. You know what? Like, I, I'm trying to think of. I, I, I don't think he's anyone's like number one. Like, oh, this is going to be amazing. But uh, I can, also can't think of anyone that is like better necessarily. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think at some point you're just everybody's in the same boat of like. If it's not James Corden, you feel like you've won yes. something. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Or yeah, like a really want... old school, like, oh, let's bring Billy Crystal back for the 11th time and have yeah. him just sort of slur through some stuff. Yeah, right. He sings song parodies. It's so great. And he's like, <laughs> it's yeah. like, Where like Jimmy Kimmy's going to get up there, give you the cool competence that you can only get from, I call him Jim Kim. We're close. But there's not, you know, he's not going to necessarily embarrass you. No. He's not, but he's going to do like a prank. And it's going to be like, Damn. I feel like my take on Jimmy Kimmel is like, I, I don't love the stuff that he has prepared. Like when he does his homework, I'm like, I'm like 50, 50 on that, but he is a pretty good like improviser, uh, riffer, like keep the moment going. I guess I just saw that, uh, Kai, the hatchet wielding hitchhiker, uh, documentary on Netflix. And there's like a whole section where, uh, about them trying to get that crazy guy on Jimmy Kimmel. Um, and then they showed it and Jimmy Kimmel kind of like saved the segment that could have gone really badly because, you know, he is pretty good. At, I think that's why they chose him. They're like, this guy can handle a uh, unpredictable situation. Right. I'm just excited uh, for him to say something rude to like Austin Butler and <laughs> Austin Butler will just run up on the stage and just smack him and be like, thank you very much. Paul is going to run up there in a sequin jumpsuit that he just wears all the time now and be like, I don't really appreciate you saying that about my work. <laughs> oh, that's a good Elvis. Oh, my Thank God. Thank you. I appreciate mm. it. It's actually everything I can do not to talk like that all the time. I mean, that's something that yeah. Austin Butler and I have in common. Now you understand his... See, I feel like you look at the picture of that guy and you're like, this guy's Australian. Like, you've never looked at a picture of a guy <laughs> and had them look more Australian than yep. Austin Butler looks. And then he starts talking like Elvis. It's very jarring. Yeah. I just assume that all young actors with big speaking parts in Hollywood movies are Australian now. Like, I don't know if it's... They just sort of, I yeah. guess, whatever. We're still producing like Chalamets and Paul Danos, but like the sun has set on the empire of like golden god surfer type guys. We just import mm-hmm. that now. Yeah, I, I feel bad when I assume an actor is American. Like I watch Boardwalk Empire and like the dude who plays Capone is extremely not American in real life, but he's so yeah. convincingly American on the show. I'm like, what? He's British? I can't believe he can act and do different accents. I never wow. get sick of that. That's Tommy from Snatch, man. Show some respect. I know, I know. <laughs> so look, in all seriousness, Vince, because you are a real professional film critic mm-hmm. and not a sensible one, yeah. I want to ask you, and this is a very, very broad question, but I think we can talk about it in a way that is not boring and shitty. Have the Oscars lost influence in the greater pop culture, or do people like me simply age out of giving a fuck about them? I think the Oscars have declined in relevance along with movies declining. I think movies in general ah, have greatly okay. declined in relevance to the broader culture. Um, I feel like we have systematically devalued them. Um, we've made them less important to the general public. I mean, when you shift, I don't know, what, what, like 60% of the resources to making, uh, you know, Marvel movies and like superhero movies, like those movies are not, they're not designed to like appeal to the average moviegoers emotions. It's like designed to appeal to specific Marvel people's sense of, uh, completism, like it's basically you're, it's you got to watch this so that the next time you see a Marvel movie, you won't feel left out, which is not the way that movie, like it's the, like even those movies, they're not really selling a movie, they're selling uh, the idea of you, you're trying to create a daily Marvel user out of you, so it's not really about the movies, and I think 
because of the, that entire shift in the industry, like people don't go to the movies as often and care about movies as much. And so, of course, they're not going to care about the Oscars as much either. I was kind of hoping that there was a story last week about it had that the same sort of feeling as those stories that come out of Silicon Valley, you know, on a whatever fortnightly basis <laughs> where it's like somebody in, invents a product that already exists. But they're like, I'm the guy that came up with it. Like, and yeah. I have seven hundred and fifty million dollars worth of venture capital and I invented the electric <laughs> razor. <laughs> or like you know the right. it's a hatchback. We've like, re- no one's thought of this before. the bus. Yeah, and like there's so so this version of that, which was coming from a studio, they were basically noticing that like that bummy romantic comedy with Julia Roberts and George Clooney. Yeah, whatever take it, the take like it to paradise or whatever. Oh, yeah. that was such a boomer movie, man. Oh, but, I saw so, the ad. I was like, so if you are that, fifty. There's a Tom Hanks movie that was like basically not released in coastal cities. That all of this and but all those movies made money. And so the big takeaway from this story, the big reinvention, the invention of the bus that was described in this was basically some studio being like, it seems like uh, different types of movies. Yeah. If you what put if them in we, theaters, what if we made a variety of different kinds of movies for a variety of different kinds of people? What, yeah, would like, that work? Hitting him with the, mm, it's good, I just invented it, on the idea of fucking making movies as it existed for 100 years. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that so many um, so many movie ideas that would um, you know, be, be, be turned into Oscar-level productions, they get moved over to television. And so, and I know this is somebody who has sold at it, or has had his uh, work in literature I can't believe I just called my books literature. But anyway, I've had my books <laughs> optioned by Hollywood. And every time it has been for television. Like it's been, you know, the option's always for movies or TV, but it's always it always ends up being for TV because they can get more content out of a single idea by making it a television show than by making it a film. And also, so- and they can sell it directly to you instead of going through a theater owner. Like the studio can produce it and distribute it themselves and take like your money direct from the streaming on that. Do you see this dynamic changing anytime soon, uh, Vince? Do you think movies will be back one day? I mean, I'm not like an industry analyst, but I definitely, it definitely seems. Uh, you're an like, ostensible industry analyst? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, We're all, yeah. I think we've all established our ostensibility credentials yeah. on that front. But I mean, I don't love to do like the uh, fantasy fucking uh, studio execs type stuff, but I definitely. You know, like at this point, we're all paying for as many like streaming channels as we were getting like cable channels before. So it's like, like you said, it's when tech invents a new thing and it, it it's basically an old thing. Like we're like, it's becoming the old thing. Like we did, like we did streaming because it wasn't cable, but now it basically is cable. So right. it seems like it would have to, uh, you know, return to a previous state because... You know, like the like, no one's uh, all these streaming channels are basically like a monopoly play, but like no one's gonna win. It seems like, and when they realize that they're not gonna win, like that would have to change uh, the way <laughs> the way that they make content. That so, would be my hope because some of them are yeah. losing like billions of dollars, like more than you would think possible. Like Peacock or whatever is like just hand over fist giving it up instead of like just. You could make a lot of movies for right. the six billion dollars that you just flush down an airplane toilet on principle. I do have yeah. that. I do have that sensation where I'll see something and be like, "Oh, that looks interesting," and they go, "Ah, oh, it's on Paramount Plus." Fuck you! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not getting that shit. I'll Let's, subscribe to that for six days. 
Yeah, that's basically our approach to it. And like my my wife does a lot of stuff with spreadsheets for work and then also for leisure, which is I'm not kink shaming anybody. I'm happy that it works for her. But she has like a list of where our subscriptions are current, what we watch there. And then like as soon as we're done with like poker face, we are banging the gavel on Peacock and moving <laughs> on to something else. No, that's a, that's a good idea. Let's go through the big categories of the Oscars right now, Vince. And Let's we're going to ask it. you who should win in your opinion, of course, mm. and who will win. I wish we had the Oscar voter confidential uh, like copy to go with us, but the, none of those none of those caddy reports have come out yet. I do yeah, love like them. Like a 77-year-old, thrice-divorced oh, executive so, producer. So fu- it's like I vote for the Fablemans because Stephen and I had lunch last week, and right. it was fantastic. Anyway. I actually <laughs> knew the Fablemans, you know. Uh, Murray was a friend. Here are your Best Picture nominees. There are... 10, so I'm going to need a glass mm. of water after I recite these events. All Quiet on the Western Front. Not the 1931. There's a new one. Uh, Avatar 2, The Banshees of Inishirin, uh, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, which I still don't, I still don't know what that is, and mm. Women Talking. What should win and what will win, Vince? I feel like the, the Oscars are uh, less polarizing than they've been in the past because I feel like they nominated 10 movies that are like, yeah, those are pretty good. None that I'm like super excited about. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, every, all of them are like, yeah, that was all right. Um, I, I, see, I, I think this one is, I think the movie that should win, or at least my favorite of these 10, is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, and it is also uh, apparently the favorite. So... Yeah, I'm going to go could, should win and will win for the same movie in this one. Why should I, it win and why will it? Um, I just feel like it was the... Uh, most of these movies are solid B pluses, and I feel like uh, Everything Everywhere is the only one that uh, maybe rises above that. I liked All Quiet on the Western Front a lot. Uh, that was pretty good, too. But, that was one you know. that surprised me that... Because I feel like that was beyond the sort of the nobody's talking about this, because I'm not plugged into what people mm-hmm. are talking about vis-a-vis movies. Like, I read a few critics' reviews and follow a few perverts on Twitter and leave it like that. But that was a movie that it seemed like was released almost as quietly as it possibly could have been. Like, it's like a foreign language thing that Netflix had, and they were just kind of like, I don't know, fucking put it on there. Like, under the Mario Lopez rom-com, let's see what happens. And then, <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> somehow it worked. Yeah, that I is- kind of got that sense, too. Like, I mean, I write most reviews assuming that, you know, nobody cares that much um and that one was like a big surprise where everybody seemed like they were like like they were jazzed i think it, people were just jazzed about there being a world war one movie yeah well the other thing is that i've noticed and i think everyone's noticed this if you have netflix any of the foreign shit that they get is always gonna be vastly superior to what mm. they they get from the states so it's yeah, like yeah. if i'm watching like if if it's like oh well you can watch uh you can watch Inventing Anna, or you can watch Lupin. I know what I'm picking. I'm not a moron, you know? Do they look as bad? Have you watched, like, do the foreign ones also have that feeling where it's like, they look like you're watching it on your phone on, like, a sunny bus ride? No, Lupin <laughs> looks terrific. It's very okay. well photographed. Um, I just wanted to say, are there any you disliked in here, Vince? Yes. Okay. Um, oh, you hate Tar, like I did. Yeah, I don't. I, well, I, I don't even know that I would say that I hated Tar, but I just plain didn't get it. That was just like me sort of staring blankly at something, being like, "I don't." What did I just watch? What was that? Yep, I had the same. I had the same. Uh, this makes me want to see it more, <laughs> and it's not. Yeah, and I generally tend to. I 
Vince is one of the critics that I read, and like you know, I trust Drew's opinion on this stuff. There's nobody else that Should I would you? let send me texts on movies at nine fifteen a.m. on a Saturday, telling me that they just finished watching you know whatever a two hour forty minute thing. I feel like the extent to which the response to Tar has been just like a proper Gaussian distribution of love to hate is like actually very intriguing to me. I don't know what I'm going to think of it. I also don't know when we're going to watch it because it's like two hours and 30 minutes long and my wife does not like watching long movies anymore. Dude, it it feels like it's five times longer. Okay. Yeah. However, yeah. Yeah. I do want to say that Roth, I, I, I think you'll like it and I don't mean that as an insult. It's just, I'm playing the percentages here because, you know, it's like, like the majority of people I know who saw it liked it, which means, you know, just law of averages that you will probably like it. Like it's not, it's not an uninteresting or unoriginal movie. Like there's like, it was made by someone who gives a fuck, you know, and like they cared a lot about the symphony and all. And like, there's a lot of knowledge in there. I'm just bored to fucking death. Yeah. yeah. There was like, there was like two, I liked two or three scenes in it a lot. Yeah. But then the movie as a whole, I'm just like, what? what? Yeah. Cause that was 5% of the movie, man. Yeah. The rest was. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem like there's no like stinkers in this list. There's nothing that I wouldn't yeah. watch. And I haven't really, I haven't seen any of the, the best picture nominees, which is bizarre. But it usually every year there's one movie where it's like just Eddie Redmayne dying of consumption. And like, <laughs> I'm not going to watch it. You know what yeah, I mean? No three, like under no, no three billboards in this year's, uh, in this year's list. I think yeah. Elvis is in that genre with like Bohemian Rhapsody of movies that like they come out and nobody really likes them, but they still get a lot of Oscar nominations anyway. And I, I know that's a wrong thing to say about Bohemian Rhapsody because it made a billion dollars and Nancy Pelosi like watches it five times a week or whatever the fuck. <laughs> but like, like it's stuff where it's like the reception will not matter just because it's so big and ostentatious that it's like, well, we have to nominate it for Oscars because we know a lot of the people in it or whatever the fuck. I yeah, know. but I feel like Bohemian Rhapsody was sort of uh, musician biopic by numbers, whereas Elvis is very much like Best. doing. It's it's making a few choices. You know, yeah. you may not like those choices, but it's like we are uh, an Australian kitsch fest, like dunked in baubles, and that's going to be our, <laughs> yeah. our whole deal. And it's I, great. I that's one that I've watched m most of because it's on like uh, whatever the pay cable channels now. I don't even probably more than one of them, and I found I. Could not imagine watching all of it, but I enjoyed the <laughs> chunks of it that I watched. But the idea of just sitting down with like a comically large, you know, family matters size bowl of popcorn and being like, see you in 150 minutes. I'm going to yeah. subject myself to this. Like under no circumstances would I do that. I, I feel like, you know, all those musician biopics, they're like sort of jukebox musicals where they, they just course. sort of play the artist's hits and you're like, you're there because you want to hear the music. They're and produced Elvis, by the estate most of yeah, the time. Yeah, of course. But Elvis is like going to a Bob Dylan show like last week and trying to figure out like what song he's singing kind of thing. Like, yep. he, like all the Elvis <laughs> hits are like medleyized and they're just like put through like a weird filter. Like you can only sort of tell what song it is and he's doing, I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, it's that's like the Baz Luhrmann difference because yeah. he's like, no one's watching this shit for the extremely popular songs that I'm putting in it. <laughs> like what they want, it's like a CGI effect where the camera appears to come out of uh, like Elvis's own ass during mm -hmm. a performance. I will move on to the acting categories. Before I do, I just want to say about Avatar 2, it is astonishing to me that it has played out, at least to me, the exact same way the original did, where it makes a 
billion, billion, billion dollars, and no one remembers a goddamn line of it. Like <laughs> it's just the most it's the most strangely disposable uh, immaculate piece of spectacle like ever created. I'm I'm really, really impressed with how much I don't ever need to see it again. Do you feel that way too, Vince, about it? Uh, I don't know. I the, this one, I just uh, I, I feel like I expected. Uh, you know, it's a big James Cameron movie. Like, say what you will about James Cameron, he usually gives you a setup and a payoff, right? Um, and I feel like this time around, like there was a bunch of things that he set up that didn't really pay off for me, and he kind of did the exact thing that I expected him not to do, which was like, oh uh, yeah, wait for the sequel. It's gonna be. It's all gonna be in the sequel. Yeah, that is true. Because there's gonna be three more of them. And- I feel like they're all going to have the exact same dynamic. Well, they'll make a lot of <laughs> yeah. money, and I'll be like, I'll be like, oh, that was fun coming out of the theater, and then like a week later, I'll be like, that was a piece of shit. Yeah, Avatar is a weird one for me because, like, in the abstract, I want to defend an artist filmmaker's right to do that, and also like James Cameron as an auteur, like as Vince said, is like pretty easy. It's not the sort of thing where he's like pushing you and you walk out of a movie not knowing what to think or whatever. Like, he's definitely. Like, the thing you're supposed to think is, I liked it when the truck was chasing Arnold down the L.A. River or whatever. You know, like, he gives you that shit. In this case, like, in the abstract, I'm like, fucking A, good for this guy. Like, stick it to him. Keep making your your movies. I have no interest in seeing any of them, and I'm not going to do it, I don't think. We actually, we have to take a break. Uh, we'll come right back and talk about the acting categories with Vince Mancini of Uproxx. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding. Sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk it through. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. If you're thinking about trying therapy, BetterHelp is a great option. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you need to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge if it isn't a good fit. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com distraction today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot distraction. BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot distraction. We are back, and uh, before we talk more with Vince Mancini of Uproxx, I just wanted to note that today's podcast is sponsored by Carnies Only, the first dating app for Carnies by Carnies. Stop contorting yourself into regular dating sites and freak it with one of your own kind. That's carniesonly.com. All right, we're back with Vince Mancini of Uproxx talking Oscars, Roth, and uh, Vince, we're going through the main acting categories. We want to talk about who should win and who will win. Mm. So this is Best Actor, Vince. We got Austin Butler of Elvis. We have Colin Farrell of The Banshees of Inishirin. We have Brendan Fraser, the sentimental favorite of The Whale. Paul Mezcal, not the drink, of After Sun. And Bill Nighy for Living. I do not know what those last two movies are, uh, Vince. Can you explain those and then say who should and will win? Oh, Living is going to be tough because I, that's the one that I have not see but uh you know i have not Bill, even heard that feels like the like the eddie redmayne movie i was talking about before yeah just like, I got, there's only four good performances this year just make up a movie and put bill Nagy in it and no one's gonna be like second guessing 
I got a strong feeling that someone will not be living at the end of that movie. Yeah. It's It's a 2022 British drama film directed by Oliver Hermanis from a screenplay by Kazuo Ishiguro, adapted from the 1952 Japanese film Ikuru, directed by Akira Kurosawa, which in turn was inspired by the the 1886 Russian novella The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy. Whoa. a lot of cool pedigree that I wouldn't have known about. Uh, Here's the part you would have guessed. Set in 1953 London, it depicts a bureaucrat in the county public works department. Facing a fatal illness. Nice. Oh, he dies. Yeah. All right. There you okay. go. Yeah, yeah. 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 You got to be dying. So who deserves to win? Who will win, Vince? Oh, this is so tough. I have a tough time with the acting uh, categories because like, in this case, I feel like they were all really good. Like all the ones I've seen, which is all of them, but Bill Nighy. Nighy? I feel, feel like I'm saying <laughs> that with a hard end. I think it's Nighy. I don't, <laughs> I don't think you should pronounce it that other way. Yeah. Nighy? Okay. Uh, I mean, give it to Brendan Fraser. He wears a fat suit the whole time. He's Brendan Fraser. Why not? All these other guys are probably going to uh, win an Oscar or have won an Oscar at some point. Um, you I know, Fraser's- Colin Farrell, like, you could always give it to him because he's always great. Also, they didn't nominate him for the Batman. And he was really good in that. I think one of the odd things about I had to Farrell- Google that to know it was him. Yeah, I think that's one of the cool things about that role where you're like, that's Colin Farrell? Because he's like, I don't know hey! that that's a cool thing, but he's you doing know. a he's doing a gobagool voice the whole time, right? No, like, I know like, he's also wearing a bunch of bunch of weird makeup and everything he like is. that. But yeah, he he had he had a, he had help from the makeup department. The thing I find interesting is that he got nominated for best actor. Brendan Gleason, his co-star, got a nom for uh best supporting actor, but really I feel like they're both co-leads in the movie. Am I wrong, Vince? Yeah. It's a bit of it's a bit of a two-hander. Yeah, I mean that's just a it's just a strategy. They 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 agree before campaigning who's mm. gonna go for one slot and who's gonna go for the other. Uh, best actress: Kate Blanchett for Tar, Anna De Armas for Blonde, Andrea Riseborough for Two Leslie, and we'll talk about that in a second. Michelle Williams for The Fablemans, and Michelle Yeoh for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I thought Yeoh was really really good, but I have not seen three of the other performances. Uh, Vince, who deserves to win? Who will win? Oh, you know what? I say give it to Anna Darmus because uh, I'm a I'm a blonde defender, and I'm just gonna go with that one again. I feel like they were all good, with the exception of Michelle Williams, who was uh, disastrously miscast uh, in in The Fablemans. I don't know how Spielberg decided to get like the two most goyish actors on earth to play his parents. Yeah, but like that's... Paul Dano and Michelle Williams, get out of here. Yeah, that's like, a real like. Unable to get Eddie Redmayne to be in it or something like that. Like, (laughs) like, certainly Michelle Williams, I think, is a terrific actress. You never catch her acting like she's always great. But the idea of just sort of Steven Spielberg looking back at his life and being like, my mom was kind of a Nicole Kidman type. Like, I know you're wrong, dude. Like, for sure. Like, I mean, yeah, like you said, great actress, but also just like solely for that haircut. I don't think you should be qualified for an Oscar. Weirdly, the one of these movies that I've seen, I watched to Leslie on a flight to Los Angeles because I was so curious about like, this was before people had gotten really mad about the grassroots slash slash astroturfed nature of the campaign as it existed. And it was the sort of thing where this was a movie that no one had sort of heard about. And then there was all these identical tweets. And I was like, well, let's see what Kate Winslet thinks is the greatest film performance of all time. (laughs) And Riseboro is indeed very good. She's, yeah. but it is like sort of like the way that Joaquin Phoenix is always good, where it's just like more of an athletic uh, 
performance of like contortions and like making your eyes pop out really mm-hmm. hard. And the movie itself is like kind of a Hallmark movie almost, like in terms of its dynamics and plot shape, which I have a lot of experience with, but not in the not in the sense of watching it for Oscar consideration. Yeah, it's like the shape of a Hallmark movie if it didn't like comfort you and hold your hand sort of right. like if the first act was gen- genuinely like off-putting you yeah know? instead of it being like i've been so busy at work that i haven't had time to get back to christmas meadow like yeah. this is <laughs> instead yeah. it's like but, i'm so drunk that i sleep on the street a lot like that's more what we're dealing with i mean it's the perfect like act performance that actors would love which doesn't make it bad but it is like oh man i can see why all the actors this is the most actors the acting i've ever seen yep uh, can I ask you about Blonde for a moment? Because you said you were a Blonde defender. I didn't mm-hmm. watch it because it got pretty poor reviews. And yeah. also it struck me that like you're casting Anna de Armas as Marilyn Monroe. Like that did <laughs> not quite work with me. But like mm-hmm. also I like the director, Andrew Dominic, because he made uh, The Killing of Jesse James. Or yes, The yep. Killing... Yeah, yeah. The, the There's some other words, but you got the by the coward Robert Ford, right? Mm-hmm. And then he also made Killing Them Softly, both the Brad Pitt. I, I like yes. both those movies very much. Would I like Blonde if I liked those two movies, Vince? Uh, I love those two movies. Also, I don't think this one is really uh, in that vein or as good as those. But uh, I think I think Andrew Dominic is for fuck you connoisseurs, and uh, Blonde is very much like a fuck you mov- movie in general. Mm. Like he likes to. He likes to stick it to us as the viewer, and uh, I appreciate it's that. It's NC-17, too. It sounds like it might have some erotic elements to it. it. Uh, it's weird. Like, I don't think it was that... Uh, I don't think it had more nudity than a lot of other R movies. Like, I think well, it was, fuck, I'm not going to watch it now. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I think they did that because there's, like, an abortion scene, so it's, like, nudity ah, plus, like, abortion right. content. But you're telling me that, like, Marilyn Monroe doesn't go on, like, a five-state killing spree and, like, rob some banks and shit like that. No, uh, sadly, no. There's no. She doesn't like team up with uh, Skeet Ulrich to do like a crime, which we love. You know, we love hearing Skeet's name on the podcast. Ah, <laughs> Skeet, Skeet, Skeet. Who will win? Uh, before we get to the supporting ones, who will win? You know, it's hard to bet against Kate Blanchett, right? Yeah, it seems like she's a lock. All right, how many so, has she won? I feel like she's won a few already. Or she won for won a- Blue Jasmine and was fantastic in it. Mm-hmm. She's I like, don't, you know, always good. Whatever. I don't know that she won a supporting actress one, but I know she's won one Best Actress trophy. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go quickly to the supporting categories, and then we'll talk about like sports and other things. A supporting actor, Brendan Gleeson, for the Banshees. Brian Tyree Henry for Causeway. I don't know what that is. Judd Hirsch for The Fablemans. Barry Keegan for The Banshees again. And Kei Hui Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Who deserves to win? Who will? I mean, I, I'm a big Barry Keegan fan. He's like the national rascal of Ireland, I think. Right. Um, I, you know, I, again, I think all these people are good. It sounds like. Kiwi Kwan is going to win, um, just because I think people think that's like a nice story. Uh, it is a pretty cool yeah. story. He's good in the movie too. He's yeah, he's great. Keegan, I felt like he was in that movie for like ten minutes. I was yeah, like, but he kind of saved the movie for me. I don't know, like not saved it, but I think he was kind of the reason that a lot of it works. Well, he's also he's the reason you could like say it's a comedy in like extremely like yeah. emphatic quotation marks, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean Judd Hirsch was also like amazing in the Fablements. He was only in it for like five seconds, but he it is definitely very very much one of those performances where you're like, Oh well that guy was clearly the best part of this movie. Yeah, he's having a good last like back nine of the whatever, back three of his career that like just he 
is really good in progressively smaller parts, which I think is like a very graceful way to age as an actor. You know, mm-hmm. like I know that nobody's trying to like cast him as a romantic lead or whatever anymore, but he, I watched Uncut Gems again over the weekend just because I, you know, it was on. That's and good. He's amazing in that too. And it's the sort of thing where like most of what he does is have like weird hair and show up and be upset in three scenes, but he fucking knocks it out of the park. And presumably then just like spent the rest of the time that everybody else was on set running around trying to do stuff, just hanging out at home. That's terrific. That's like, um, that's like Paul Reiser. Like when I saw Paul Reiser and Whiplash and in Stranger Things, I was like, I'm preconditioned to fucking hate Paul Reiser. I'm like, he was good. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. By the way, uh, before we move to the actress, I just want to say that a, I might be the only person on earth who, anytime I see Judd Hirsch's name or his face, the uh, the theme song to Dear John, his shortly lived NBC sitcom, plays in my head, and I will not, I will not Roth sing it for you. No, that's fine. I mean, I can you hum it though? <laughs> it was a mm-hmm. shitty show. It was a bad show. Uh, <laughs> best supporting actress: Angela Bassett for Black Panther: Wakanda Forever, Hong Chow for The Whale. Carrie Condon for the Banshees. You're all barren. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis for Everything Everywhere All at Once. And Stephanie Sue for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Who will win and who deserves to win, Vince? Ooh, tough category. I'm going to be honest. I don't like remember any of the performances in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, really. Uh, I remember. Do you like, remember anything about Black Panther Wakanda? I remember the production design. It looked very good. It was very cool production design. Um, other than that, I don't remember really anything about it. Um, Carrie Condon. Great. I think she would be probably my my pick for best actress. Uh, Hong Chow, I feel like should have won a few other times. I don't know that she necessarily deserves it this time. She's in the Uh, menu and very good in that. Yeah, she's fantastic in that. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would have nominated her for that over this. But that's just me. Who will win? It's gonna be Jamie Lee. I mean, come on. Yeah, it could, it's either going to be Jamie Lee because she's been around or it's going to be Angela Bassett because she's the only black actress nominated and there was like, a you know, the kerfuffle over some black actresses being overlooked in favor of uh, Andrea Riseborough, allegedly. That's every other year. Every other, every yeah. other year, it's like every year we get, you get like a hashtag Oscar so white because there aren't any black nominees. Because they are. <laughs> because and then the it's next, valid. Yeah, and then yeah. the next year, they're like, okay, we'll nominate some black people in the acting categories. And they're like, okay, we did our job. We'll go back to the white people the next year. And then the process just repeats itself. It also would be yeah. annoying to me, personally, as someone who has, again, not seen the films. If Angela Bassett wins like a career, you know, like basically a well-deserved lifetime achievement award for standing in a fucking airplane hangar in Santa Clarita and talking to someone who isn't even there. Like that sucks. Like give it to her for some, one of the performances that she actually, you know, I mean, obviously I'm sure that's really hard. That type of acting is probably difficult to do, but it just seems like a, (laughs) whatever. Especially this year when there's like so many strong, other strong contenders there. Yeah. Cause I thought Sue was really, really, really good. And I think... I'm so glad they didn't cast Aquafina in that like they, yeah, like they wanted right. to. And I, I also wanted to say, while we were talking about Black Panther, I have not seen it because I think... I, I've got my fingers crossed here, but I, I think I'm kind of done as a parent with Marvel. Like, I don't think my kids give a fuck about it mm-hmm. anymore. And I, like, there, I, I got out of, like, Pixar and animated movies like a few years ago. Like, I was freed from that, even though Pixar movies can be quite good. And like, and then I was stuck in Marvel for a, a while because of the youngest one. But I don't think he gives a rat's ass about Marvel anymore. So I think I, I might like they be. Blew it. 
I think I might be. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like who, like who, who cares after Endgame? Like you did it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Vince, uh, what lesser categories are you invested in this year before we move off of the topic? I, I don't think I've ever been invested in the lesser categories. You weren't like, uh, sometimes sorry. I'm like, oh, that cinematography is really good. If this movie doesn't win for cinematography, I'll be pissed. Um, I mean, All Quiet on the Western Front is nominated for cinematography, and I thought that was a beautiful looking movie and uh, probably will win, should win. You're um, also yeah. um, you're also a, a comedian, Vince. How sad are you that America has silenced beloved Dilbert creator Scott Adams this wow, week? Wow, that's a... I mean, hit that when, segue, jeez. Yeah, when whenever Mark Maron asked me who are my guys, uh, Scott Adams is like yeah. up there. It's like Scott Adams, <laughs> Dilbert, and Dogbert. Yeah, uh, they're like in my top three of that's, my guys. That's my top three as well. Not necessarily in that order. I'm a Dogbert guy, but yeah, yeah. I'm, who's yeah, on, who's on your Mount science. Rushmore of Dilbert characters? <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only three that I can remember. <laughs> okay. Right. That, you know what? That's exactly as much discourse as uh, the Dilbert guy deserves. Uh, we have to talk about baseball. I think he for... should see a psychiatrist. That's all. That's what. Yeah, that's I was going to say that's the him. other thing. All is, of them uh, have to. All of them have to do that. Well, not, I don't know if Dilbert needs to. He's not real. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm talking about the. I'm talking about. He the sees asshole. Dogbert. Yes. Dogbert is his psychiatrist. <laughs> it's true, actually. Roth, uh, I want to ask you about baseball for a quick moment. The pitch clock has made its debut in spring training already. It's already impacted not only games, but gamesmanship. There was a game that was lost in the final at bat because the batter didn't get into the box in time for the pitch clock. And then Max Scherzer of the Mets. The Mets. Is so excited that he can use the pitch clock to fuck with batters and all that stuff. Are you excited for the pitch clock? He's going to revolutionize baseball? Unexpectedly for me, uh, yes, I am excited about it. I'm also, you know, as I've, I think, made clear sufficiently over time, enough of a pervert that I will just take whatever baseball they're giving me. Like I've literally watched the Mets my entire life. Like the, my discernment is a matter of public record. Yeah. There's proof right there. But I really was surprised at how much I enjoyed watching Scherzer in particular. I mean, obviously not everybody's going to be at that level of mastery, certainly not in like the first three or four games of spring training, which is what we're still in, but watching him mess around in the little bit of space that the pitch clock has carved out with the new rules that the pitch clock has implemented was actually really fun because I don't know that he's going to keep doing any of it. You know, like his rhythm matters too, but he was doing the stuff where he would like come set super early in the pitch clock. And then like that sort of like locks the batter in such that he would then just make the guy stand there for 10 seconds feeling (laughs) weird before throwing a pitch, which is fucking awesome. Like I've never seen that before. So it's really like, who knows how well it'll work, you know? Like, he did it to a guy named Michael Chavis on the Nationals, who, like, definitely was at a disadvantage facing Max Scherzer to begin with. And he, like, it definitely weirded Chavis out, but then he wound up, like, pushing some shitty opposite field single through anyway. So I don't know, like, he maybe he'll discard it entirely, but... I don't think he should be allowed to use games gamesmanship. He's already got those Australian shepherd eyes that make him look kind of kooky. Like that's right. all you get. Like yeah. what else do you need? Technically, that is that does qualify as gamesmanship, where you sort of mm-hmm. like don't know which one to look at, and you're feeling a little strange. Yeah, but the I don't know. So for me, to the extent that it becomes a new space to fuck with people in, I think it's good. To the extent that it becomes an excuse for umpires going over the top and getting on TV, that's obviously bad. Oh, that would But be I bad. think that they're calling it really tight now. They'll, by the regular season, they'll have some sense. Everybody will be more or less on the same page. 
So I'm not like expecting to see a World Series game decided by a penalty ball or whatever. <laughs> which would be the the only real bad outcome to me. A flag for defensive holding that should not yeah, be thrown. Right. It would be funny to me if Rob Manfred and the owners who are always searching for a problem in baseball that doesn't need to be solved, if they actually somehow stumbled bass-ackwards into something that really did make the game more exciting and popular for everybody. Yeah, like, and I don't know that you're going to win over, like, weird converts who, like, baseball is not for everybody, you know? Like, the only reason it ever was for everybody is that, like, we didn't have a lot of other sports yet, you know, and it was, like, on the radio. That's true. But I think that It's also, well, it's just a good radio sport, and people don't really, like, experience sports that way. Right. Yeah, and I think that's, so that, for the same reason, I think that it's a good radio sport. Like, there needs to be some space in it. The idea that, like, if you're watching baseball and you're just like, I wish this was more like hockey, like, then you should watch (laughs) hockey. That's okay. Like, you don't, they're not, you're not going to be able to square that circle, like, effectively. But, yeah, to me, I think that if Manfred's problem, every time he talks about baseball, his issue is that there's, like, too much baseball in it. And he's like, I just, I wish it was over faster so I could go home. Uh, and think about golf. like That's how I that's, think about it. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. but I think that it really does seem to have shortened the games to a certain extent. And like, as somebody who will, again, keep drinking that garbage, like it's established, I wouldn't mind leaving 20 minutes earlier either. So hopefully it works. It would be funny if this was like Manfred's signature thing and it was coming entirely from his distaste for the sport that he's the commissioner of. Vince, you want to remember a guy... Oh, I love I love remembering guys. Because it's time for a guy of the week. Every week we remember an athlete of yours, not a Hall of Famer necessarily, but just a guy who makes you think, hey, I remember that guy. So your guy of the week, Vince, it's Tom Rathman. You remember Tom Rathman? <laughs> Do I wow. remember Tom Rathman? Yeah, I'm a Niners fan. Of course cool. I remember Tom Rathman. The prototype. Tom Rathman, a neck roll icon for his era as well. Yeah, he sort was. of a proto-Jizwick uh, character. Is that how oh. you say his name? Is that how you say it? Kyle Jizwick? You know what? I already screwed up Bill Nagy. I don't want to <laughs> take another swing. You know what? I uh, I love a good Jizwick. I, uh, I light it, and uh, and then little babies come nope. popping out of the fire. Nope, that is not. That is next week's sponsor for the podcast. <laughs> Fuck yeah, it is. <laughs> it's time to open up the fun bag. These are real questions from defector readers and distraction listeners. This one's from Adam Vince. Who would be Hi, the most ridiculous yet compelling non-serious actor to try to break into major dramatic roles. I'm having a hard time thinking of anyone who fits the bill more than David Spade. <laughs> I didn't put this I on like the original it. rundown, Vince. This one's kind of a surprise. I apologize. But like, I thought David Spade was such a, an amusing suggestion. Yeah. Because it was like, if someone was like, if someone was like, listen, there's this indie called Banshees of Inisherin 2, and it's got David Spade as you've never seen him before. I would be the guy who would be like, that might work. That's just crazy enough to fucking yeah. work. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, th- th- there's already a Sebastian Maniscalco uh, movie, which is basically like my big fat Italian, my big fat greasy Italian wedding. Oh uh, my God. On Netflix. That is so, so think, him. <laughs> yeah. He's so. in, um, he's in the Irishman. Is he? And, yes. He's got, and it's like not exactly a dramatic part, but mostly they just brought him in to do Sebastian Maniscalco moves. So there's a hey, few just a Goomba, he's, right? He's yeah, like, right. Where he's like talking to Robert De Niro and he's like, what are you doing? Get out of here. Like, and it's just like, but it's, you know, he could do that. He's like, obviously he's established that he can do that. You can't but, just shoot the guy. Right? But <laughs> the idea of him trying to like crossover david spade is very funny rob schneider has lost his mind so it's less yeah. fun now yeah but, yeah that's the problem isn't it? because like he would definitely try to do that and he would make some sort of like anti-woke 
I guess any of those guys, if Rob Schneider got like on a bunch of like windstraw and showed up extremely <laughs> venous and ripped, that would just, actually work. Just for me, the most it? vascular Rob Schneider that you've ever seen, just yep. completely striated. Yeah, just like constantly finding excuses to take his shirt off and then be like making cappies or whatever. <laughs> yeah, there's no way Maniscalco could do like a small Australian indie drama about like abortion or something like that. He but can't then have the, the baby. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what he should be doing. Yeah. yeah. Can I see? Well, this is something that I've not done because it's a little bit of work and because I'm trying to be a more responsible citizen on Twitter. But I'll, I will share the thought with you here. So Schneider posts a lot about like the woke mind virus. Like he's got the he's fully taken all like every color pill that you could take, he mm-hmm. has taken. And every time I see one of them, and I don't follow him, but you know, they get surfaced sometimes in that way that people on Twitter will like bring you a dead bird they found and be like, You probably <laughs> would hate this. You wanna read this? Yeah. And the I every time I do it, I have the urge to record on that little like vocaroo thing where you can record your own voice, just reading his tweet back to himself in the making copies guy voice, like being like, the woke mind virus has popularly <laughs> polluted the minds of Hollywood. <laughs> like, woke yeah. the wokester. Yeah, it's like right. It's right there. This one is hard. This one was actually hard for me. This Globalismo, Globalmeister, Globaluski. <laughs> Soros, George Soros, the big sorcerer, the big sore. Manipulating public opinion. <laughs> it's all for the Jews, the big juicers. <laughs> this is from Craig Vince. He says, over the years, we've had fun admiring how thin-skinned certain athletes can be to online criticism. Kevin Durant seems to be the consensus pick for athlete cheese butt, but I started wondering who the biggest sports writer cheese butts would be, or more accurately, from a very wide pool, who comes second to Pete Prisco? Yeah, I was going to say, it's, I know the answer to this one. <laughs> yeah, he, he cut you off before you had a chance to, to just come right in with the number one answer. Vince, do you have... Uh, an answer besides Pete Prisco. Oh man, I don't know sports writers enough. Like I don't follow sports writing enough to know who the biggest cheese butts are. I'm surprised he didn't mention. I, I've just recently watched the Bomani Jones Jake Paul interview, and that I've never seen like an a- athlete quite that thin skinned before. Possibly that might be like the new number new number one thin skinned athlete. Well, you know what's interesting that, about Bo is that Bo himself, who is awesome and been a guest of the show, he's a friend of the show, but I don't know how he carves out enough time for every day to be a guy who quote tweets his haters on Twitter as much as he does. He does it like a dozen, two dozen He's times got that a day. High motor, man. It's it a yeah. competitiveness. It's got that dog in him. Yeah, Just right. Like if incredible. it were him, he would have been recording those fucking Vokaroo tracks and sending them to Rob Schneider. He has no <laughs> he does that have that compunction that I do. Roth, do you have an answer? Can I just I want to celebrate Pete Prisco briefly because you, know, you should. He, I think he's still at CBS Sports, but I don't know for sure. I don't know. I don't really know exactly what his beat was for a while. Like he like lived in Jacksonville, I think, and like, but it always seemed like every time I saw him posting, he was like replying to someone with a hundred followers with like a video of himself squatting three hundred pounds. <laughs> like it was just completely off topic and out of pocket. And I just appreciate that he was living that recklessly. He seems like a guy that wears shorts like every single day. Which Gee, I also George, respect. he wears shorts, of course. Yeah, he's shorts, and that was initially something that he I think got mad about. People calling him out on it. Uh, 
this is a tough one, though, because I feel like it would be an NFL guy. Those are the weirdest. And yet, like, they don't read their replies, you know, that like, which is good. We had a period of time once, like, like, Woj is a maniac. Yes. And yes, a he- grudge carrier, like, par excellence by, you know, wide acclaim is just like one of the more difficult and contentious guys. But he also definitely does not like read his replies and so therefore like it wouldn't ever bother him like if he's got a beef it's like because of something jr smith said to him in 2011 that he's never forgiven him for or whatever like that's the sort of level of of grudge carrying and and you know combat that he's on uh last one and roth i'm gonna direct this actually to you this is from dave in england he said i often wonder whatever happened to hideki matsui's legendary porn collection Fifty-five thousand films seems like a lot to uh, store. So how do you get it all converted? Or did he finally discover that the internet can cater to whatever horny predilection he might have at a specific moment in time, and usually for free? First of all, we should uh, we should remind people of this story because it's just a the context is really what matters here, Roth. So uh, you, Dave's question is a good one. I think anybody that cares about film preservation has wondered this at some point. Uh, anybody that cares about the cinema. Uh, so yeah. Martin Scorsese should Martin. bankroll Hideki Matsui's porn uh, <laughs> preservation. It's part of the World Cinema Project. Yeah. You don't want to insert the what a picture Al Pacino line reading here, but this is... So Matsui famously, when he joined the Yankees, like this was, you know, he'd been a big deal in Japan. He had a big nickname. He was, uh, you know, like a widely public figure who was also just generally known had a encyclopedic porn collection of like his like private DVD collection was in the tens of thousands of films. Good for him, man. In terms of what would have become of it, uh, I feel like if you get to 55,000 DVDs, then you're not going to just decide that you're okay with streaming quality. You know, yeah, and that's when you get to fifty five thousand. Those DVDs are no longer for you. They're like for they belong to the world. Those yes. are for posterity. Well said. Point. And so, yeah, yeah like it belongs the, in a museum. That's right. <laughs> the idea of just deciding because you see this with like people's CD collections. Not mine. I still have them, and I buy new ones because I have a lot of defects. But the <laughs> idea of like one day just deciding to punt on it and. For five hours, you're just carrying crates of DVDs to the curb and then you leave them there. Is like that is kind of a funny thing to think about, but I don't think that that's like feasible. I mean, he's got to be distraught though, a little bit. Like, streaming comes along, he's like, Wait, I had all 20 copies of Jiswick 5 and I can't, <laughs> like, now anyone can have them. That sucks. This is sucks. Bull. I mean, dude, just like the act of digitizing it 55,000 times. Two hours. What is that? One hundred and ten thousand hours of digitizing like that. Like, who's going to do that? Yeah, I think that's I, generally considered. That's like the Malcolm Gladwell number of hours that you need to spend to master <laughs> enjoying pornography. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're going to rip a DVD uh, of porn, that's for a guy who like is like a 2003 LimeWire contributor. Like, that's not anything Hideki Matsui is. Gonna this have this was my literal job at one point, by the way. Like, really? I, yes. Wait, I go on. In, in 2005, my job, like I worked at a porn company where my job was taking their old tapes that were on like one and a half inch uh, videos um, and put them into like a DVD format and so that they could theoretically sell them. 
And it was, I mean, it was the most boring job in the world because literally like I would press play on the tape deck and wait two hours for it to digitize. And then like, you know, make like four keyframes and drop it in the, uh, the DVD mastering software. But and this yeah, is probably like, this job. is probably really shitty porn, right? Just like oh, terrible. No, it was actually because it was like the, I was basically witnessing the, the birth of uh, amateur video. Cause these were like the first amateur video, video pornography from the, like the early eighties through, you know, the late nineties or whatever. Some of the hottest amateur models, some of the best top notch primo ladies <laughs> the idea in the world. Doing that and being like, this is how it starts. My journey in the film business begins here. <laughs> yeah. That's that's right. really I do dagger, remember man. one of them was this, this woman wearing, uh, she was wearing like a series of, of, uh, the masquerade type masks, uh, and, sure. and eating eating a hot dog dangling from the the ceiling while reading uh, some uh, body limericks. That is what it's all about. That is uh, why she's not a star today. I don't know. That is a hot that, dog that dangling fun. from the. So this is this implies that there is a worse job than the one that you had, which was <laughs> digitizing it, which is somebody holding like a fly fishing reel, <laughs> like <laughs> raising and lowering the hot dog as needed. Yeah, that was the that's the proto OnlyFans boyfriend right there. Yep. <laughs> you know what? I I can't think of a better way to close out an Oscar preview than with that story. That was yep. truly Cinema's the best alive show and well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I were opening the Oscars, it would be with that story, and Errol Morris would shoot it, and Vince would be just on a plain white background telling the story. The soundtrack of Chipotle? I'm so happy you brought that up. Because <laughs> I feel like this is America's introduction. Homeworth is legitimately one of my three or five favorite filmmakers. And the idea that everyone knows him now as being the guy that's like, what kind of carnitas are those? Like, <laughs> yeah. Would you say that he's probably like my most memorable interview? I went to interview him at the Beverly's Beverly Towers, like, I don't know, three years ago for some for I forget which documentary he was doing. And, uh, and it was like, I was like his last interview of the day and I went in and it was just like me talking to Errol Morris in his hotel room. And, uh, he just talked to me for like 45 minutes or something like that. There was just like, and I was like, am I the one that's going to have to wrap this interview? Yeah. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) I've had that before. I've had more where I've been talking to a celebrity and like they'll give me all the time in the world and I'm like I don't think I want to talk to this person anymore. No, I mean he was an incredible interview interview, but it, at a certain point it was like, okay, I feel like I, someone's got to wrap this up because I don't know what we're what we're gonna do. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I would try to this. get him to say different things in his Errol Morris voice at the end of it. Like just be yeah. like, do you want to go? Do you want to go to Del Taco with me? And he'd be like, Del Taco. <laughs> would you say that Randall Adams was a pretty unlucky person? <laughs> Vince, before we do the final credits, uh, where can our listeners find your writing and anything else? We want to plug. You can find my writing on Uproxx. Um, I have a couple podcasts. The Film Drunk Frotcast, which is our sort of general uh, current events podcast. And then we have Pod Yourself The Wire, which is our Wire Rewatch podcast. It's spun off from Pod Yourself A Gun, our Sopranos rewatch podcast that is the only way to make the title make sense but uh you know we've had we've had roth on it's uh it's great check it yep. out it is a it's an important podcast in my opinion well thank you so much and uh for people who don't know vince uh i think vince is pretty much the only film critic i trust even when i don't agree with him so i do really uh i do encourage you to read his work eric silver is our producer brandon grugel is our editor our theme song is by kirk hamilton Ads and production services are by Multitude. 
And please subscribe to Defector.com right now while you're at it. Just go to Defector.com and hit the subscribe button. Also, you can email Roth and me at distraction at Defector.com. And if you're still listening to this podcast right now, that means that you are hardcore. And we'd like to hear from you. Literally, we've opened up a we've opened up a Google Voice account at 909 726 3720. That's 909 Panera Zero. That's okay. And you can you can leave <laughs> you can leave voicemail fun bag questions that we'll play on the show or song parodies or impressions of Robert Kraft or whatever anything else you want. And uh, we'll sift through the detritus and if it's good enough to make the show, we'll put it on. But you can be a part of the show now. Uh, just dial 909 Panera Zero and we'll hear from you then. You can say it. Vince Mancini, like. thank you so much for coming on. We come on again sometime. I would love to. I had a great time. Thanks, All right. I know that you guys are in the nasty 909. I was uh, going to say, yeah, this phone, it's actually just an answering machine in San Bernardino, California, <laughs> that you can leave a message on. We'll see you all next week. Bye. 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 Bye.